Blog Talk Radio. This is Beth Baum coming to you live from Decatur, Georgia, and I am really, really honored and just totally geeked out, psyched about our guest this morning. Uh, Mike McHarg is um, better known as Science Mike. He is an author, podcaster, and speaker who travels the world helping people understand the science of life's most profound and mundane experience. His best-selling debut book, Finding God in the Ways, has helped thousands understand faith in the 21st century. Mike's the host of Ask Science Mike and co-hosts the Literature's podcast with his friend Michael Gunger. He recently appeared before sold-out audiences in New York, Chicago, and London and is a frequent contributor to Relevant Magazine, Storyline, BioLogos, and The Washington Post. But most importantly is Mike is the husband to Jenny and the father to uh, Macy and Mitch. I'm going to admit, Macy and Maisie, is that right? Macy, yeah, and Macy, you are. Yeah. So, um, welcome, Mike. We're so honored to have you here. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for including me. So, I, I'm going to tell you a brief story about how I got turned on to you. I had a young young pastor at my church, and I was talking about some podcasts, and he's like, oh, you've got to listen to The Liturgist, in which I proceeded to binge listen to every episode y'all had done, and then started listening to your podcast. Um, but what's really touched me is is your book, Finding Gods in the Wave, um, which we have links to in our show notes, and we really um, encourage folks to read it. But tell us a little bit about your background in regards, in regards to sort of starting the podcast. Well, <clears throat> I'd had this experience where I, you know, grew up in an evangelical church, and became an atheist as an adult and had a mystical experience that made me question both the you know the faith of my youth and the skepticism of my adulthood and i felt stuck between these two worlds that that don't really get along all that well <laughs> you know christians uh don't tend to hold skeptical or atheistic thinking in high regard and uh that tends to be mutual and i felt that i had a longing for mystery and for spirituality um, that made my atheist friends uncomfortable. But I wanted to base my beliefs on evidence and scientific insight, which made a lot of people in the church uncomfortable. And I realized that um, if I felt like that, potentially many, many other people felt that way too. So I started blogging. If you can remember blogging, that's a thing people used to do. And um you know very limited success there and uh and then we started podcasting and once we started you know trying to capture this middle space between sort of traditional christianity and skepticism um people responded and responded enthusiastically and i think that's because podcasting is such a an intimate medium it it allows for a vulnerability and a, a degree of expression that's difficult to capture with the written word and plus today people are so mobile i'm sure they you know they love having media they can consume on the go um and it's been a great experience for us i never planned to be a professional podcaster but now that i'm doing it i love it well, and being from Alabama and English being my second language, I love podcasting too because I don't have to worry about punctuation and spelling. <laughs> oh, I'm from North Florida, so I understand that well. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So one of the what, the reason I wanted you to have you here was because, as you know, Southeast Green is all about environmentalism, sustainability, and creation care. And um, we get little tidbits of that on Ask Science Mike, but I really wanted to sort of delve deeper in, in, into those topics with you. So we're just going to kick it off where we're probably going to make a lot of uh, traditional Christians really upset. And let's talk about your view of the biblical creation and the, the scriptures and and what that what that infers to you in regards to caring for God's creation and, um, you know, your interpretation of of that. Okay. Um, well, I think the biblical 
creation account, um, no matter how you interpret that, some people read those scriptures and they take away a universe that was created in six 24-hour periods. Uh, some people read that and say that you know maybe those days were a bit of metaphor and that the universe is very old. And other people say that those you know, passages of scripture are almost entirely poetic, that science has a more accurate way of describing the formation of the universe, but that Genesis still teaches us a lot about God's character and relationship to creation. And I think no matter which one of those schools you fall into, uh, creation care becomes one of the earliest directives God gave humanity. Um, the earth in, in, in Christian theology was created uh, for mankind to exist and to encounter God. And uh, that means we have a responsibility to care for it. You know, we think we're supposed to care for uh, the church and the sacraments and mankind. Um, and you can't care for mankind without caring for the incredibly complex and fragile web of life on the surface of this planet that allow people to exist. But we also see a recurring theme in Genesis, and that's as God creates things, God calls those things good. Genesis denotes a God who is pleased with creation. And I think that illustrates to us that we should also find the earth to be good and care for it with the same love and reverence that God seems to hold for creation. And I love it. And I, that's one of the reasons I resonate with you so much is you're not truly a scientist. You're you're me like me, a communicator. And the way you communicate things is so thoughtful and intentionally beautiful um, that I just think it's so important for us to keep reminding ourselves that it would that the creation is really important to God because there's a lot of Christians, unfortunately, who sort of miss that message. Yeah, you know, when I've teased that out in research, you find that um, there's no real statistical correlation between religiosity and uh, an antipathy towards climate change or the environment, that that actually tracks cleanly with a conservative political leaning. So if you have someone who would describe themselves as conservative evangelical theologically, but doesn't identify as conservative politically, those people are just as uh, open to caring for the earth and saying that's important to them as the rest of the population. So what's happened here is part of the church, and by no means not all of the church, but part of the church has been hijacked by a conservative political agenda regarding economic growth in opposition to the environment. And I think it's, it's healthy for us to name that, that this is not an issue of theology, but of politics. And um, as people of faith, it, uh, you know, it's, it's okay to have political beliefs and political leanings, uh, but it would be inaccurate to describe um, an antipathy towards the environment as a religious issue when it is a deeply political one. Right, and I I agree wholeheartedly that somehow religion has been hijacked by politics, which makes the conversation of climate change a bit challenging. Um, and I know you don't spend a lot of time talking about climate change, but I know that my uh, audience would love to hear some of the ways that you would engage in talking about climate change without using incendiary words like climate change to evangelical audiences to maybe get them to recon start reconsidering how they view the world, the earth. Yeah, I think it's uh, if people are afraid of the term climate change, we can use um, more accessible language that's less explosive and achieve similar results. We can talk about pollution. No one thinks pollution is a good idea. Uh, no one thinks air pollution is a good idea. If they do, ask them if they would stand in their garage with the door closed and the car engine running. 
and they won't. They 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 want the air to be clean enough to breathe. And so um, I think if we if we refactor the discussion towards the importance of having clean air and clean water, um, and you know this this will inevitably move towards a discussion of well what will the economic cost be. Uh, and and that's when you know you want to be prepared to talk about some of the exciting developments in the high tech job and high income job production in clean energy production, for example. Um, in many parts of the world, uh, wind power has recently, without subsidy, achieved a lower per kilowatt cost than traditional fossil fuels, including coal. Um, so it's oversimplified to say that sustainable policies are always more expensive or cost jobs. Um, and But you always want to emphasize our, the importance of us, theologically, caring for this planet, caring for the garden that we were given, that we were tasked with naming according to the Genesis narrative. And um, I'm okay for someone who's not comfortable uh, accepting climate change or accepting that climate change is uh, a contributing cause to climate change is human activity, talking instead about uh, more um, traditional environmentalism, the necessity for clean air, clean water, and the continuation of different species on the planet, endangered species. Let's talk about the rate at which species are going extinct and what factors might be at play. And, you know, do we is it important to us um, as people and as people of faith that our grandchildren or great-grandchildren are able to see some of the plants and animals and wild areas that we've enjoyed? If it is, we have to change the way we're doing things because animal species, there's no debate about this, are dying off at a rate unseen in the entire period humans have been on this planet. And um, I think most people, if they don't want to talk climate change, will be willing to hear and understand how many species of plant and animal are disappearing from the earth every day. Now, you've traveled all over, uh, well, actually sort of internationally, but particularly in the United States with the promotion of the book, and you do this wonderful thing where you basically just open up the audience and you take any question that gets asked. How often is the environment, environmental question asked when you're going out to, to these venues? Often, yeah. My audience is deeply concerned with uh, earth care. Uh, I, get, I get quite a few questions on the show, both live and, and the traditional studio format, about um, climate change and environmental science policy. Uh, especially because some of those issues are very difficult to tease out because you have so many moneyed lobbyists on both sides churning out kind of low-quality propaganda that crowds out, you know, better information in people's Google searches. Uh, so I get I get a lot. Um, I don't get as many as I would think. You know, so much of my audience is, is trying to work through some religious trauma, trying to get to some... Uh, functional understanding of God that matters to them, and uh, in that process, you know that they tend to move their questions that way. But I don't, I don't have more than two shows go by without getting uh, at least one, you know, really dialed-in question about the environment and climate change. And we're planning a climate change episode on the Liturgist podcast, so watch out for that in the relatively near future. Super. I am looking forward to hearing hearing that for sure. Um, and 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 so we're talking about a little bit about religious trauma. Um, I one of the things that I think we've um, done very either well or poorly. I can't decide. Is telling the story of the Bible. And I think that people can have religious trauma even if they just read the first chapter of Genesis, which is the historic sort of verbal. You know, God created the you know earth in six days, and the seventh day He took rest. Versus chapter two, which is completely different. And I think you're aware that I've been t- teaching climate justice um, to the United Methodist women 
um, all over Georgia. And it's sort of funny to me that people are sort of, like they just don't remember that in the very first two chapters of the Bible, we've got this dichotomy of completely different creation stories. And so I, I'm just curious about your take on, on how, how do you see people sort of balancing these, these different narratives? Well, I think that, you know, if you, if you want to view the Bible as an entirely divine work, um, that becomes a, a difficult challenge. <laughs> that, right. You know, the, 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 the solutions that tie those two accounts together can be messy. If you instead view the Bible as a, you know, either a cooperative work between humanity and God, or as a primarily human document about God, those things start to be less troublesome. You know, um, some of my research and, and, and folks who are smarter than me have done much better research tell us that in the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, there was never an understanding of some single narrative composing this text that rabbis, even in the time of Jesus, understood uh, that collection of documents as containing multiple perspectives, even a debate about God, and they viewed it all with reverence. They viewed that process as necessary, you know, to inform our understanding of God, to wrestle with what our faith means in different social and societal circumstances. And when I look at the Bible, including the New Testament, I see a book that was. Uh, it's a library. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff in there. And it was collected by the church to communicate the truth about God. And that means everybody who had some hand in the Bible's authorship, the editorial process, the collection process, the canonization process, even translations, is bringing part of their perspective to the text. So I I start with the expectation that the Bible is going to have different perspectives and different agendas that stem from the different people who contributed to all these documents becoming a single library that we call a single book. And then, of course, it, uh, there's one account that's Genesis 1 of creation there's a second account, probably by a completely different author, that makes up Genesis 2. And the question to me is not which one is right, but what were these authors trying to communicate about God? And why were these two accounts selected for inclusion in the Scripture? And that's uh, more complicated, it's more subtle, it's more nuanced than the way we tend to read the Bible. But ultimately, I believe that it is more rewarding and less likely to trip up people's faith. Well, and that's a really thoughtful way of looking at it. So um, just for listeners who are not, I, everyone, regardless of whether you're a person of faith or not, I mean, is aware of God made the earth in seven days and took rest on the seventh day. Um, the The second chapter, which I had to learn to teach this climate justice program, is like completely different, and that's where people that the thing that they remember is you know Adam lost a rib and that created Eve but like the the, the whole structure is completely different so when you read ch- chapter 1 versus chapter 2 what are some of the insights you have in regards to what's being tried to what's being communicated well i think um you know if, if, if something as simple as uh what is the focus uh, of the of the books, um, they are structured in pretty significantly different ways. Uh, Genesis one has a much more expansive scope than Genesis two. Uh, Genesis one, uh, you know, mankind is certainly uh, mentioned, but in no really greater length than the cosmos or other plants and animals. Uh, it's a very holistic book, um, and of course it has that rhythm of, you know, God did this, it was so, and God saw it was good. God said it, God saw it was good. 
And if you if you take Genesis one and compare it to other creation epochs of the time, where the creative acts of the gods were violent in nature, this God is creating with thoughtful intent and calling creation good. He's not antagonistic or indifferent towards creation, but God is pleased with creation. And so that's kind of the essential idea among many beautiful things that I would take from Genesis 1. When we look at Genesis 2, things change a little bit. Um, It's a different account, and you see much more focus on humanity uh, versus the other aspects of creation. Um, And so Genesis 2, which which I think many scholars believe uh, truly begins Genesis, that it, it that that author contributed much more to the rest of the book than the author of Genesis one, who may not have com- committed anything, uh, now takes us from this grand cosmological epoch to a journey primarily concerned with the relationship between God and man. And Genesis two lays out uh, a relationship that began with intimacy and moves toward estrangement, and I think this is an early attempt to make a theological answer to why is there bad in the world, why, why if, if God is good and God saw that it's good, why do we have these problems? And so Genesis 2 is setting the stage for the fall and our relationship with our own behavior. And so there's, compl- there's very different um, takeaways from those two books based on that relationship. Uh, and with but, with that uh, said, I'm not a biblical scholar. This is my sort of amateurish floundering. <laughs> well, and you know that I, I think that's the other thing is is you're very clear that you know you're not a scientist and you're not a theologian. But honestly, I've heard pastors sort of describe it the same way. So clearly, you're um, well versed in this. But I I think the other thing that happens in chapter two that I really love is and you use the word intimate, but there's preciousness, right? That, that God trusted man enough to name every single thing. Hmm. So, um, yeah, and I love that. And I will. I, I can't tell this to my, I call them the, my fine ladies of the United Methodist women um, that I have been talking to all over the state of Georgia, and I can't use this joke, but you might appreciate it. So when we, we move through the, the class, we are, go through a series of, God creates a covenant, and then we're out on our derrieres again, right? So Cain and Abel, Noah, and it always reminds me of this old Saturday night skit um, where they're talking about in, out, in, out. Oh, I think I'm getting a woody. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I always want to tell that joke, but I, it will go over their heads and, and be completely inappropriate. So, um, But there is that narrative in Genesis where, like, God gives us another chance, and then, you know, we've we've messed it up again. And so, you know, in the process of messing it up, I think that sometimes um, faith, people of faith, especially more um, conservative or traditionalists, think that when we talk about the planet or taking care of the earth, that we're leaving people out of the process. And um, one of the things, of course, that... um, happened as I've delved in my learning of creation care and that that we really need to take care of the planet, but one of the most major ways we need to take care of the planet is taking care of the people that we are, by abusing the planet, putting at risk. And so I know you have a deep um, call to justice, and I just wanted to sort of explore some of the environmental justice thinking that you have in regards to you know, what is justice when it comes to creation care? Ooh, that's a deep question. Um, I would say at the most fundamental idea is acknowledging the right of future generations to enjoy the earth as much as we have. When we talk about uh, justice here, we're talking about people who aren't here yet one day we'll call this planet their home. And um, we have a moral, ethical obligation to leave them an earth which is hospitable towards them, that has adequate resources for them to eat and to dwell and to thrive. 
And the rate at which we're depleting our energy resources, our forests, our clean water, um, won't leave enough for future generations. And also, frankly, um, in a contemporary context, punishes less uh, wealthy nations and less wealthy people. So the the changes to our environment that human activity is making, even if we ignore climate change, disproportionately affects poor people. Rich people have the option to relocate, to build elaborate infrastructure with their economies, to mitigate changes to the environment. Um, you can imagine if uh, a valley was flooding, those with enough means to build a house higher on the hill are fine. Those who don't must simply abandon all they have and now be homeless further up the hill. And there, so there's an there's a economic discrimination and penalty uh, in the destruction of our natural resources. So we can address that with how we handle economic development how we handle industry, how we handle the production of the food, which will not only make the world better for those of us who are wealthy enough to deal with climate risks and environmental risks, but will actually improve the quality of life for people all over the globe. And 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 because uh, part of part of the challenge I think we have. Um, for those of us who are in sustainability environmental, is creating a compelling enough case to care about the least of these. Um, and and I, you know, for church people, that's a very easy conversation. Especially for Christians, it's a very easy conversation. And Jesus said it. There it is. Care for the least of these. But it still can be really overwhelming, right? Um, to think about that Bangladesh will be gone and there will be, you know, 20-plus million people who need to be relocated because of, of sea level rise, that those problems seem so big and unjust that people can't – it just – the problem becomes so big they can't even think about it. Um, and I know that you would know that there's – how why is that? Why can pe- Why can people sort of – scientifically disconnect from such a compelling story. Oh gosh, yeah, that's see that's cognitive psychology. So, um if you if you show people a problem too big for them to solve or contribute to, instead of motivating them it paralyzes them. And then we have an intrinsic need as humans to see ourselves as good people. And if you've just implicated my way of life as making homeless 20 million people, if I accept that, I'm no longer a good person. So uh, through something called the backfire effect, we push back against that notion and entrench ourselves deeper with the information rolls off our back and we now become antagonistic towards that message and the one who conveyed it. Um, You have to remember human brains weren't designed to seek truth, but survival. We're not rational, analytical machines making weighed judgments on what we perceive. We are trying to secure food and shelter, safety and sex. That's what we're about. And for us, a huge component of that as social primates is to fit in culturally with our community um so i tend to rely more on storytelling instead of talking about 20 20 million people show what's happening in one life with a face and a name and provoke empathy and then show how your actions you one person can affect that one person's life and that's much more manageable you know, I often say we know we can't help everyone, but you can help someone, and and 
reducing the aperture on these issues makes it easier to act and then offer a continuum of solutions. So maybe someone's not ready to to have one less car in their household or or to carpool to work every day yet. They're not ready to do that. But we can talk about the immediate environmental impacts of replacing one bulb a month in your home with an LED bulb replacing an incandescent bulb. We can talk about the environmental impact of once a week checking your tire pressure. We can talk about the environmental impact of cleaning the air filters in your home or eating one less serving of meat per day. Those are manageable changes that in the aggregate make tremendous changes in our environment. I would love to be a vegetarian. I have the soul of a vegetarian, but I cannot break my meat addiction. But I have dramatically cut back on the amount of meat I consume. And that makes it, that's for most people, the single biggest impact they can have on the environment is to eat less meat, especially less beef and less pork. And put it, putting things in those contexts makes it seem actionable and manageable. And as people get used to doing those things, they become curious for what more they can do. Once you've replaced every bulb in your home with LED lighting, well, what could I do next? I did that. It felt good. My energy bill went down. I feel like I'm contributing to the solution. And you create people uh, as partners in environmental justice, one small action at a time, motivated by the story of not 20 million people, but one in particular. I think that is so helpful, um, and um, it makes me want to go back and change some of the things I'm doing in my class. And I'll tell you this, and since you're in Tallahassee, I think you'll appreciate this. I was at the uh, Southeast Clean Tech Open last week, and General Wesley Clark was speaking, and he was saying in 30 years the Gulf Coast would be gone because of sea level rise. And, you know, being from Mobile, you know, and going to school in Tallahassee and, you know, family all along the Gulf Coast, um, it it was so shocking to, you know, that was the first time it had been put into terminology like it's just going to be gone. And you think about all the culture and the faith and and the love for, you know, the beach, the people, and, and all the other things along that area but I still think that that's probably too big for most people to grasp, that they would become antagonistic to that message, like there's no way the Gulf Coast could be gone. Come on, Beth, that's crazy. So um, Yeah, we want to be careful on what timelines we offer. You know, there, there is no question the sea level is rising. The question of how that will trend over time and to what degree it accelerates means when we talk about the loss of coastal areas, there's tremendous uncertainty. Um, So I think it's better to talk about uh, long-term trends, but also, you know, the things that are happening now, the the ocean acidification, the loss of coral life, collapse of sea life, the loss of uh, one particular issue, even more than deforestation, is the way ocean acidification is contributing to plankton die-off. And, of course, plankton do more to scrub CO2 CO2 from the atmosphere than even trees do. We can talk about desertification. We talk about things that are happening right now without having to paint um, dire pictures attached to time frames. Because uh, what can happen is some environmentalists in the 70s and 80s made uh, predictions that were based in data, that, but that were kind of on the most steep part of the curve. And when those didn't happen, people who have living memory then disregard the environmental movement. Um, So I'm always careful to temper um, that there's a range of outcomes over a period of time, but even the most conservative estimates are not desirable in their impact on our societies, on our economies, and especially on the poorest among us. Right, And, and I do think that in some it's hard, right? So Atlanta has just come through its warmest winter. I am crying mm-hmm. that my blueberry bushes are blooming now, which is a full month right. early, 
Right. right. It just makes me sad every time I walk out of the door. Not because I think there's going to be another cold snap, but because I'm like, this is, to me, a very tangible result of, like, this is happening faster than we thought, and this is this is insane. I mean, I went home for a Mardi Gras ball last weekend, and I was driving through town in Mobile, and I was like, what is wrong? Something is wrong. The azaleas were blooming. You know, <laughs> azaleas aren't supposed to bloom for another four or five weeks. And I'm sure you're in the midst of azalea season right now, too. And they were talking about, like, the masters won't be so pretty because the azaleas have bloomed so early. And, and you know, we can get into the debate about climate versus weather, which is two completely different things, and I'm certainly right. not able to do that. But it just feels like this year, this winter, um, we're, we're really starting to see effects. And, of course, next winter it will go back and we'll have a snowstorm in March and, you know, people will like, see, see, there is, you know. So how – how do you think, um, you know, with the, the there is a visceral anger about discussion of climate change. Um, how do you, because I know you're very good at sort of diffusing anger. How do you recommend that other people start practicing sort of diffusing that anger about like, well, you said it was going to happen this way and it didn't, so you're wrong and I can't trust you and I can't listen to you anymore. Yeah, we're careful about the predictions we make. Um, we talk about what is happening today, how that's different than the past, and then the range of outcomes that could imply in the future. Um, but, you know, we defend our credibility that way. We, we, we Even talking about the hottest winter on record, uh, every time you say that, that should be married to the fact that, remember, we're not talking about global warming we're talking about climate change. Why do we say climate change instead of global warming? Because the changing climate predicts an increasing temperature instability. So we will have some years that are the most mild winters ever, but then we'll also have periods of shorter but extremely intense winters because now the Arctic air, which is supposed to be contained by a jet stream keeps sliding off the top of the globe and hitting Siberia or Russia or sliding over and putting polar conditions as far south as Atlanta and the United States. The model predicts that. So it's not about every year is hot. It's about the weather changes more frequently and more dramatically. That's what we see happening with climate change. So when we say you know, I heard you do it now. It was great. We just had this hotter winter, but next year could be the coldest just on a more brief period. Um, and by, by offering those outcomes, we help people understand we are not talking about what's happening outside your window today, but happening in aggregate across the entire planet over time as a trend. And that's that's what's concerning. So, you know, if we want to talk about, you know, uh, some of the potential kickoff effects that could cause us to accelerate, we're having a global permafrost right, melt right now. If that happens, potentially you have this incredible release of methane into the atmosphere, and climate change accelerates dramatically. But that also might not happen. So we always have to hold intention that uh, when we're talking about global climate, our certainty levels are low in terms of specific instances happening in specific time frames. But our certainty is much higher when we talk about general trends over a 100 to 200-year time frame. That's so helpful. Thank you so much. I, I, I really, because... There are so many people who say, I'll tell you one of the coolest things that I found out from Southeast Green. Um, I, I, when I introduced myself to you, I said, you know, I used to be an apologist liberal who barely talked about my faith. And through the journey of Southeast Green, I have become like this evangelical environmental Methodist. And, um, you know, I'm so cognizant of like, I think one of the biggest challenges for the environmental community is is they they, they focus on doom and gloom. And, um, you know, people shut them out because, it's like we said, it's just so overwhelming. Um, and and I always joke, like, I'm never going to another environmental uh, documentary because they're just so 
tragic, and many of them cannot pull you out of of the depression to give you really logical answers. And um, Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, latest movie, you know, people felt like there was hope, but I didn't feel like, I mean, that um, there was hope. And so the only way I know how to describe it is, is when they did Bridget Jones' Diary 2, they were talking about the you know, the director's cut about how, like, as a movie maker, to bring people up to the level of excitement at the end of the movie, how they have to, um, you know, they have to balance the story. And I think that's one of the reasons that environmentalists end up, like, losing so much ground in their storytelling is is they they seem to be, like, just, this is the end of the, you know, like the guy on the corner with the sandwich sign saying, this is the end of the world, you know. How many people, you know, may say, bless his heart for doing that, but, you know, just dismiss him because it's like, you know, if, especially if you're a person of faith, no one knows when the end of the world is. So I'm just curious about, you know, what your take is on sort of the the, the story of environmental environmentalism. Yeah, if, uh kind of lean into my past as a, a marketing person who worked in advertising. Uh, doom and gloom advertisements don't work. Um, you know, if, if we think about anti-smoking campaigns, the campaigns that showed, you know, lungs that have been charred by years of smoking on a table that were gruesome or uh, that described the negative health consequences of tobacco smoke exclusively didn't drive much behavioral change. It's when you talk a little bit about the negative consequences, but then how immediate actions can prevent them, and you spend more time talking about common sense, accessible steps that you start driving changes in behavior. So we do need to tell the stories of what's happening in the globe. But it's better to zoom in and talk about a couple of specific species, a couple of specific environments that illustrate the larger global trend, and then a call to action on how someone can help today. And you spend just as much time, or maybe even a little more, on the actions people can do today than you do on outlining the problem. And then, and this is really important, you conclude the narrative by showing an example of success. Then people understand these actions really do help. And when you have that kind of a focus, you take people out of decision paralysis and put them into a mode where they feel empowered to make changes that have a substantive effect. And is there a personal story you use to sort of motivate people on this? I mean, it would depend on, you know, whatever issue or topic uh, we were discussing. Um, but, you know, there's um, – I'm now having decision paralysis because there's too many. <laughs> too many. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You can talk about the ways that, uh, you know, lower income cultures have re-engineered their societies away from the exploitation of wildlife, especially endangered wildlife, and into a cleaner, more tourism-based economy, for example, that raised the standard of living. There are several examples like that. Uh, you could talk about, um, uh, you know, the success story we've had in uh, fuel efficiency in the United States. Americans really are buying more fuel-efficient vehicles, even as gas prices are reduced, and talk about what that means and differences in the share that uh, automobiles make in creating pollution in the United States. Um, we don't hear a lot about acid rain anymore for a reason. Environmental reforms worked, right? So there's lots of success right. stories we can we can point at that say when we make these changes, it really does help, and we can continue to make changes that create a better environment for us today and definitely for generations in the future. 
Right. And I will say that um I don't I don't I did not want to get political but I guess in the current climate it's sort of hard not to mention what is happening nationally, but I keep on telling people um you know, the way to offset what whatever is going to happen, because we we still we're, you know we we sort of have the groundwork laid. We don't even know what's actually going to happen, except for the the pipelines. Um, you know that that just means we have to work harder individually. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think that's important. Good climate work is led at the local level. Um, you can make more impact on the world by lobbying with your city council for a move to single-stream recycling or, um, you know, electrical consumption at government buildings or tax credits for more energy-efficient appliances, those will make a bigger difference in the world than the time you spend talking about presidential or national congressional action. Um, You know, cities and states and counties can lead the way here. And uh, when they do so, the feds will follow. Well, and and since you and I sit in Georgia and Florida, I think that you will appreciate that in some ways (laughs) start with the city and counties because the cities and counties start to say, hey, you at the state level, because both Georgia and Florida have pretty – dismal state uh, policies um, mm. or political action, you know, that, that if the counties and the cities, if it becomes so important to them um, that, you know, they get to talk to the, the, the state leaders and then I just, I, I feel like, you know, people should make that, that connection. Um, like, although I will say that this is sort of an interesting story in Georgia, Tybee Island sits off of Savannah, the causeway out to Tybee now floods on a regular basis. And um, I did a capital visit with um, IPL up in D.C., and we visited the the congressman, who's very conservative Republican. Um, But this is a big issue, because every time that causeway floods, he's getting calls to fix it. And so he understood sort of sea level rise, rise on a unique individual basis that we did not anticipate. I think you'll see you're going to see more of that um, in Miami, in my own state. The effects of climate change are already being felt. There's some neighborhoods that used to flood during storms that now never unflood. And uh, you know they went so far as to invite uh, Dutch engineers to the states to talk about levees and dams and what you could do around the city of Miami. And they, you know, they said nothing. The city is on is on limestone. <laughs> you can't build a wall on top of a sponge to keep water out. And um, so I think that will create additional pressure. I think, unfortunately, we're going to have some economic loss and some some highly impacted communities in the process of that happening. Um, and, you know, that's very sad for me. Growing up, Florida was always a very environmentally conscious state because our economy is based on tourism, and what brings people to Florida is our natural beauty. And so you could count on whether it was a Democratic or Republican administration in this state that it would be extremely environmental friendly. And, uh, you know, I'm not that afraid of getting political. Rick Scott has been a calamity to the environment in the state of Florida. Um, and I firmly believe uh, that he will be judged harshly by future generations and historians for his complicit uh, role in the destruction of wildlands and wild spaces in Florida. Well, and um, I have no problem beating up your governor. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I don't either. Because (laughs) I – because of Southeast Green, you know, I go to like the geekiest, wonkiest kind of meetings, just like crazy – kind of meetings and you know I spent the day in a glass recycle an entire day talking about glass recycling laps of glass recycling and you know so I go to these natural gas things and what Rick Scott has done and reg- I mean just property rights I mean if you don't even care about the environment property rights in regards to trying to get more pipelines into to Florida um and yet you know 
you would think that a good if, – if, if the argument is, is Republicans are more business-friendly, then you think you would want to harvest the natural resource that you have most abundantly in the state to create energy, right? Sun, <laughs> you know. Right. And yet he's been the worst governor on, on solar. I mean, just just completely ridiculous. Um, and so, you know, and instead, you know, trying to bring in – you know, I, I tell people we don't mind um, being the gateway. You know, it, almost everyone who comes drives to Disney World's got to go through Georgia. You know, good for, <laughs> for business for Georgia, but we do not want to be the pipeline. You know, entry for Florida because y'all can't get. I say y'all, we. You know, being a Florida, uh, Floridian by birth, can't get the right policy in in regards to energy. You know, I mean, his entire. Right. Mantra is like natural gas, just more natural gas, and I'm like, that is just lunacy. I mean, you don't, you have zero. There's zero production in the states. So what happens if the the natural gas pipelines go down? Then what are Floridians going to do? You know, it's it's right. really been unbelievable. Yeah, Florida is one of the states where solar is um, not very difficult to make cost effective because of the intensity and number of days of sunlight we get. That's uh, kind of a no-brainer, uh, which, you know, this this is why citizen action, I think, is going to be so important. If you look at what, you know, Solar City and, and Elon Musk are doing with these solar tile roofs, uh, which could be cost comparable with a traditional roof, um, you know, we can we can reduce that, that natural gas demand right on our own just by making decisions when we roof or re-roof a house. And that is and that is absolutely true. And um, we just finished a solarized program in my my county city area, and it's been the most successful one in the state. And I think the the good thing about those kinds of programs is it's making people think, um, oh yeah, this is something we can do. And, and in fact, one of the um, I put the band together. I got sort of all the parties together and sat on the mm-hmm. volunteer board. And one of the guys with us, he ended up, there are nine houses on his street that are going to have solar. And so we're talking about, like, can we petition the city council to rename the street to Solar Avenue? <laughs> because there's going to be right. so many neighbors right. with solar on it. So I, I absolutely agree that, you know, once again, if you can't change the politics, then, you know, change what you're doing. Because solar is definitely one of those things where people are like, oh, it works, and like you can't see it, and you know this is just in, at all what my experience I thought I was going to be. So I think that's one of the really cool things about solar. So we've got a little bit of time left, and I just want to touch um, what I'm going to call the farmers versus the ranchers. Take a you know show tune uh, topic out and talk about sort of the the. We don't have this in Atlanta anymore um, because of the sustainability community is very well formed and, and very collaborative. But I was talking to a. a an environmental Christian who's doing environmental and environmental justice work in Alabama in regarding to the coal ash, and he was talking about like just how discouraging it is to be constantly sort of put down for being someone who could have a faith and then you know sort of want to work in the environmental thing, which is contradictory to his faith. That's that's sort of where he was coming from, and I just I wonder if you have any words for for those farmers and ranchers that need to be friends. Yeah, I think if your faith community is antagonistic towards how you approach creation care, um, there's no dearth of faith communities in the United States, especially in the Southeast. Um, And there are communities where that will be a held value. Um, Be careful how much abuse you subject yourself to over time um, you 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 can't lead people where they don't want to go my friend Rob Bell says that and um, if people aren't going to get it and in fact they antagonize you for your actions uh, it's it's time to <laughs> it's time to move on it's time to find people who can partner with you and will be excited to do so so that your sustainability is personally sustainable. Right, because fighting definitely um, 
Definitely. It, right, it just drains you, right? It just it, it will right. eventually kill you emotionally. And and in regards to sort of like the traditional environmentalists to like we embrace science and we think, you know, you crazy Christians are crazy Christians. Any words of thought on that? Be a good environmentalist. Be a good scientist. Your actions and words will speak for themselves. Um you know, I, I often find I get invited to speak to a lot of science conferences that aren't religious in nature, and I usually spend the first few minutes uh, answering people's questions and helping them understand that I'm not like a conservative evangelical. That people think of Christian, that seems to be the only American image people have today. Um, but that's not the full expression of the church today. And it just takes a few minutes of honest conversation and then people get it. And then that's out of the room and and it's fine. I I have had very little trouble um, creating productive, friendly, treasured relationships with non-religious scientists and advocates um, because I am for what they are for a science-based approach to understanding the world and intentional efforts to protect our environment from the exploitive way we tend to do economic development today. Mm-hmm. Uh, hashtag profound. Um, <laughs> and I think I think it's at the beginning of your, is it beginning of your book where there is a quote about like, as a ti- scientist I was drinking out of a glass of water and at the bottom I found God. Yeah, the Werner Heisenberg says the first gulp from the glass of the natural sciences will make you an atheist, but God is waiting for you at the bottom of the glass. And I just I think that's so beautiful and so true. Okay, so um I want I I do want to say um I think it's so awesome that in your in your book Finding God in the Ways, which once again I highly recommend everyone to read, um that the way that you got called back Sort of into the fold um, to use, you know, old colloquialisms is is it was an act of nature, right? That it was yeah. waves washing up over your feet, and um, and I just think that so many people really can find, um, even as a human secularist, a positive energy from engaging in in nature in ways that make sense to themselves. Hmm. Hmm. So, with that said, would you like to plug your book? <laughs> <laughs> sure. You can just go to FindingGodInTheWaves.com if you want to hear more about the book and my story and how I've wrestled to understand my faith primarily through cosmology, quantum physics, and neuroscience. It's a book about a science-based approach to Christian faith and practice, which I think is timely for our era and the millions of people who feel left behind by pure secularism, but judged by traditional Christianity. That's that's awesome. Mike, I, I cannot thank you deeply enough for your time today. It's just been wonderful. I feel like I have been fed to start this week. So thank you oh, so much. That's so kind. Thanks for having me on. Um, and we wish you the best of luck. And um, and I really, once again, I, I can't say it enough, check out uh, Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist Podcast. You will deeply enjoy it. Thanks so much for your time, Mike. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. I hope you feel as, as if you feel one-tenth as fed as I have from this luxurious time we've had with uh, Mike. He is in such high demand, and I just really, really wanted to have that conversation with him because he doesn't, like I said, he doesn't talk about the environment so much, and he's He's such a brilliant, thoughtful, intentional guy. I just really feel like he is a gift to those who are trying to balance, you know, how do I meet the conflicts of today's world with a a, a tradition that provides um, such a powerful message of love. And so I really, really thank Mike for the time. He was on NPR yesterday, so it's really an honor to have him here on Speaking of Green. Like I said, March is crazy. Um, 
and we've got lots of episodes coming up. Um, I will. I, I want to take a minute to say, if you haven't listened to the podcast on the Toshiba nuclear meltdown, and you live in Georgia or South Carolina in particular, uh, take a listen. I think you're going to find that a very interesting conversation. Once again, this is Beth Bond signing out with Jeff Hicks and the Heretics. Heretics um, and don't forget that Southeast Green is available 24-7 and um, is here to serve the community of the Southeast in regards to sustainable business and environmental policy news.